service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Lil Wayne are insane. He attempted suicide by shooting himself in the chest when he was just 12 years old. His stepfather was violently murdered. He was a child star. And later, while one of the biggest stars on the planet, he was imprisoned for a year's time. Lil Wayne was raised on the streets of New Orleans during a point in that city's history when the murder rates skyrocketed and neighborhoods were terrorized by kill squads patrolling NOLA with murder blazingly spray-painted across gang members' vehicles to leave no doubt to their intentions. Lil Wayne overcame all of that and more to become one of the most successful hip-hop artists of all time, an artist with more hits than Elvis, yes, Elvis, and an artist that to this day still makes great music. That music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Coleco Sneak MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Like a G6 by Far East Movement featuring the cataracts in Dev. And why would I play you that specific slice of Cesarp sippin' cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on November 4th, 2010. And that was the day Lil Wayne was released from Rikers Island Prison for gun charges, proving once again that Lil Wayne cannot be counted out. On this episode, an attempted suicide, a violent murder, a year in Rikers, and the irrepressible Lil Wayne. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Hip-hop phenom Lil Wayne was glued to his television set. His Boston Red Sox were nearly dead. Bottom of the ninth, three outs away from a humiliating American League Championship Series sweep at the hands of their hated rivals, the vaunted New York Yankees. Yankees closer Mariano Rivera, with his deadly cut fastball, was more of an assassin, and there was little hope. But then, a leadoff walk to Red Sox seven-hole hitter Kevin Millar, and suddenly, there was life. There was life for future Red Sox fan Lil Wayne, too. Even though he lived in one of the deadliest cities in the world, New Orleans. Except his name wasn't yet Lil Wayne, it was Dwayne Michael Carter Jr. And he wasn't even close to being the international hip-hop multi-platinum sensation he would become in the early 21st century. How he became a Red Sox fan, the world still isn't sure, but back in the early 90s, he was just another kid knocking around New Orleans the home of bounce music, a speaker-knocking form of hip-hop 
that was uniquely Southern. Up-tempo, big bass, brass band hooks, Mardi Gras Indian chants, call-and-response choruses, party rhymes, street-smart rhymes, booty raps, the twerk, the clap. But lyrics about the many glories of the many fine asses out shaking it on New Orleans dance floors soon gave way to lyrics more reflective of the violent reality encompassing the city. In 1994, in New Orleans, the murder rate reached a staggering 424 people. One of the unfortunate victims was 32-year-old Kim Groves. She had recently filed a complaint against New Orleans police officer Len Davis. She saw Davis pistol whip a nine-year-old in her neighborhood. A nine-year-old. Kim couldn't look the other way, so she went to the cops. A day later, her body was found a block from her home in the Lower Ninth Ward with a 32 caliber police-issued bullet in her skull. That's just one example of the extreme violence and prevailing lawlessness of New Orleans in the early 90s. Gang violence was sweeping New Orleans right alongside the consistent spread of crack cocaine. Notorious Mets gang members terrorized New Orleans citizens with their murderous ways, rolling through the city in their infamous black pickup truck, brazenly spray-painted with murder across the side. The kill truck was used for just that, for killing. Whenever you saw the truck out on the streets, you knew a body was about to drop. And bodies dropping was a regular occurrence. And the rising New Orleans murder rate of the early 90s spawned a strange t-shirt ritual. Everywhere you'd look, you'd see the t-shirts of the dead on the backs of locals. Remembrance tees printed up to honor the victims of gang violence with their pictures, usually some sort of biblical quote in a parting message from loved ones. In memory of Kilo G, rest in peace UNLV yellow boy, forever a G, pimp daddy. Kilo G, UNLV yellow boy, pimp daddy, three of New Orleans rising hip hop stars, each ascending in accordance with both the rise of bounce music and the New Orleans murder rate. Starbound but street-born, UNLV Yellow Boy minced no words about where he was from or what was on his mind. Like most people in New Orleans at the time, murder. In one of his early rhymes on Drag Him in the River, Yellow unambiguously threatened fellow rapper Mystical's life, pledging to dump his corpse in a record label owner's backyard. Yellow was also rumored to have shot up the House of Cash Money Records label boss Brian Williams, AKA Birdman supposedly going as far as to pistol whip him. Yellow Boy died unexpectedly of gunshot wounds at 23 years old, sitting in his car. Pimp Daddy met a similar fate, murdered at 18, shot in cold blood. Kilo G the same, shot in his house. He was only 20. They would all die, but Dwayne Michael Carter would live. But not without pain. His father split when he was two years old. He dealt with it from before he could remember. It wasn't so bad though, he and his mother had Rabbit, Reginald McDonald, his stepdad. Rabbit held it down on the home front and stood tall out on the block. Every morning, Dwayne, who is now calling himself Wayne, dropped the D in protest of his father's abandonment, his father who shared the same name with him. Every morning, Wayne's mom would get up and go to work as a cook. Wayne would get up and ditch school and hit the corner, and Rabbit would get up and hit the corner too a different corner with the OGs while Wayne kept his corner with the young Gs. The message, however, was clear. Like stepfather, like son. Wayne and Rabbit connected. Rabbit was only in his mid-twenties while Wayne was entering high school, and the generation gap barely registered. 
Neither did the notion of being a child. Regardless, Rabbit was a strong parental influence on little Wayne. They had a connection. Wayne had someone to look up to, to live up to, and perhaps more important, someone to look out for him on the streets. But that wouldn't last. The truck rolled up on Rabbit fast, just like the jump out boys from 17th and High Grove. Whoever these dudes were, they weren't fucking around. Before Rabbit knew it, the dudes in the truck were out on the curb outside the club with him. Their hands were on him quickly, and they shoved him in the front seat, jumped in behind him, slammed the door shut, screeched off, hit a nearly abandoned gas station a couple blocks away, threw Rabbit out onto the ground, and pumped seven shots into him. He couldn't take all of them, few could. Rabbit died instantly, for what reason no one knew, especially not little Wayne Carter who not only lost his dad, but now just lost his stepdad. Wayne poured his pain into his new passion, rapping. He put together rhymes in his head. He saw it as a possible path, if not a way out, then at least a way towards something. And any path involving hip-hop in New Orleans in the early 90s went nowhere without first going through the doors of Cash Money Records. Lil Wayne somehow hustled up label owner Birdman Williams' home phone number and started freestyling raps onto his voicemail machine. And this led to an invite to Cash Money's offices. Wayne's teenage charisma and confidence landed him a gig as Birdman's errand boy, and soon enough, his talent as an MC, despite his young age, led to a record deal with Cash Money. His dreams were coming true, but his mom would have none of it. Hip-hop was as violent as the corner, in New Orleans, it was all the same scene, the same violent scene. His mom laid down the law, no more rapping, no more Birdman, no more dreams of a hip-hop career. She had a dead boyfriend and wasn't about to have a dead son. It was crushing. Wayne loved his mom, but he loved hip-hop. And now it was being taken away from him, just like his stepdad had been and his dad before that. Wayne was miserable, angry, confused. In New Orleans, a city where it seemed the only way out was in a body bag, Wayne had found a way, potentially, in hip-hop, via his talent, and now that dream was crushed. He wasn't going to just stand by and let that happen. He went hunting for the gun, Rabbit's gun, the Blue Steel Taurus 9mm. He found it in his mother's bedroom. He headed back to his own room, jacked the volume on his stereo. The speakers bled with the scorched feedback of his favorite band, Nirvana. He raised the pistol to his chest, pushed the barrel hard into his skin, steadied the finger on the trigger, closed his eyes, and pulled. Okay, listen, if you're one of the few people out there who's new to podcasts, new to Disgraceland, new to true crime, if you have not already listened to the wildly popular and hysterically funny and informative podcast, My Favorite Murder, hosted by my friends Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark on the Exactly Right Network, then what are you waiting for? You got to check out My Favorite Murder in each episode. They're going to tell you stories about infamous serial killers, cold cases, 
incredible survivor stories. And listen, these guys are wildly popular for a reason. They have an incredible chemistry. They're hysterical. They're smart as all get up. And you're instantly going to feel like they're long lost friends. They've got great new episodes on the subjects I've already mentioned, but they've got this whole treasure trove of back episodes, including well-known stories from true crime and music history, like the deaths of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen, the murder of pop singer Selena, and now the infamous story of the cocaine bear. I've known Karen and Georgia since the beginning of my sort of foray into podcasting. They've been heroes of mine. I was on their podcast in March of 2022 to share my hometown story about a prison break party that I attended in high school. Uh, And they told me it was one of their most popular episodes. So you can check that out as well. Listen to My Favorite Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Brand new episodes drop every Thursday. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Remarkably, the Red Sox were back, down by one in the bottom of the ninth. Speedy Dave Roberts entered to pinch run for Boston. Bill Miller was at the plate. Roberts leaned into a big lead off first base, stealing on the mind of Sox fans. Miller took the pitch. Roberts took off for second. The Yankees' throw from the plate was late. And the Red Sox were still alive. So too was Lil Wayne, even though he'd just shot himself. He was just 12 years old, lying on his bedroom floor with a bullet in his chest, alive but barely. New Orleans PD were on the scene before the paramedics. Four cops entered the bedroom. Three of them immediately started searching for drugs and weapons, ignoring the near-dead kid on the ground with a fresh hole in his chest struggling to breathe. But one cop, the one they called Uncle Bob, got down on his knees with Little Wayne, began comforting him while sussing out the damage. One of the other cops radioed in for status on the ambulance. He told Uncle Bob to chill. The cavalry was on the way. Uncle Bob told him to fuck off and heroically picked Lil Wayne up and carried him out to his own off-duty vehicle, placing him gently in the back seat and hightailing it off to the hospital on his own. 
Any further delay waiting on paramedics would have likely ended with Little Wayne dying before even making it to the ER, and the doctors barely saved his life. Lil Wayne would not soon forget Uncle Bob. Years later, on stage at the 2018 BET Hip Hop Awards, Lil Wayne, while now a star accepting his career recognition, I Am Hip Hop Award, told the world about Uncle Bob. He brought me to the hospital. He refused to wait. He kicked in the doors. Said, you gotta do whatever you gotta do and make sure this child make it. Not only did he refuse to sit, not only didn't he give me to the doctors and just leave, he stayed and made sure I made it. After his botched suicide attempt, Wayne committed himself to hip-hop. His mom still didn't like it, but she'd rather have him alive and rapping than dead. He'd got the hookup with Cash Money young, but label boss Birdman knew that such raw talent had to be groomed. Lil Wayne had been rapping since he was nine and was signed at 12, but Birdman was in no rush to put him on the mic. Lil Wayne chomped at the bit, performing verses on command, seeking features, collaborators, anything to get over and out of the streets. There were still guns at home, and that was common sense in his neighborhood, Holly Grove. And when his mom caught him packing a gun to take to school, she stopped fighting him. He could spend his days at cash money instead of school. And there was no resisting it. Music was school now. Music was life. And Birdman would now fill in the role of father figure, guiding Wayne to perform a featured verse on tracks with several groups within cash money, until together they settled on a winning formula, the Hot Boys. Lil Wayne, Juvenile, Turk, and BG, backed by Cash Money's Secret Sauce, production by Wiz producer Manny Fresh. The bounce-inflicted Southern rap that Hot Boys dropped on their debut album in 1997, Get It How You Live, lived up to Cash Money's rep as New Orleans' escape route. The record was a regional smash and charted nationally at 22 on the Billboard R&B hip-hop chart. For the first time, 14-year-old Lil Wayne could see light at the end of the tunnel. Except as a minor, Wayne's deal with Cash Money was a deal with his mom, too. She had to co-sign his contracts and controlled his finances. So even with his advance and features under his belt, he was still on the corners hustling weed, cocaine, and crack for spending money long after he'd signed. The streets had a gravity to them. They rooted Little Wayne's fearlessness, and the violence all around him made him hungry. He made himself a promise. He'd know he got out for real we could buy his mom a house. Wayne gripped his forearm, picked at his elbow with frayed nerves. He swayed back and forth, and the hot lights beat down on him from above. He was backstage, leaning first to one side, then the other, slick with sweat from just performing Swagger Like Us with T.I., Jay-Z, Kanye, and M.I.A. But now they were reading off his category. It all came down to this. February 8th, 2009, the 51st Grammy Awards. Lil Wayne had bought his mom a house long ago. Cash Money had fulfilled his promise and his strategy of always being available for that next feature had paid off. By the time of his first solo album, The Block is Hot, in 99, anticipation had built and the debut went platinum. His series of albums titled The Carter, beginning in 2004, had each blown up bigger than the last and he was now Cash Money's signature artist with all the clout that came with it. Tonight was his coronation. The Carter III was nominated for six Grammys. It was a force of nature, just like Lil Wayne. It had debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, sold a million copies in its first week of release, closed out the year on its way to being certified triple platinum, and produced four singles, including a Millie and Lollipop, 
which had already won Best Rap Solo Performance and Best Rap Song on this evening. Will I Am and T-Pain were presenting Best Rap Album. Lil Wayne was up against Jay-Z, Nas, T.I., and Lupe Fiasco, a murderer's row of 2009 MCs. Wayne was only a few years from surpassing Elvis Presley as the male artist with the most entries on the Billboard Hot 100. But in 2009, winning Best Rap Album would be the crown jewel. T-Pain read his name, and Wayne ran up on the stage, jumped in the air, and knocked his heels together. His friends, family, and collaborators flooded the stage. It was his ultimate triumph, so far. But it was bittersweet. After so many years on the come up, Wayne thought he had finally escaped the specter of street trouble. But beyond the glamour of Grammy night, Wayne knew what was coming for him next. Sentencing. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Dave Roberts, Sox pinch runner, stole second. They were down by one. Bottom of the ninth. The Yankees were up three games to none. Winning would humiliate the Red Sox and send the Yankees to the World Series. The tension couldn't have been higher. Bill Miller was at the plate. Riviera made his pitch. The ball shot off the bat up the middle. Roberts tore ass toward the plate. The throw from Bernie Williams. Again, late. And the Red Sox tied the game. Playing for a tie wasn't the Red Sox end game, and neither was it Little Wayne's. His mindset was to win, to overcome whatever obstacles presented themselves, staying alive in the murderous hometown, the murder of his stepfather, surviving a gunshot to the chest and becoming one of the biggest selling hip hop stars on the planet. Except Lil Wayne was being taken out of the game. He sat in the dentist's chair. Root canals were supposed to be scarier than they actually were, but not today. This hurt like a motherfucker. It wasn't just one root canal, it was eight in one sitting, eight root canals in an eight hour sitting to repair his tooth implants and to repair his real teeth that for the last few years have been capped in gold and diamonds. 150 grand worth, the grill had to go. $150,000 worth of diamonds and gold sparkling in his mouth wasn't gonna cut it in Rikers Island prison. And there weren't any official rulings on the books about dental implants in prison, but possession of jewelry was regulated in order to avoid the sticky situation of using it to barter for contraband or sex. Riker's inmates were restricted to only wearing watches that were valued at less than $50 and wedding rings valued at no more than $150. Religious necklaces were allowed again, but nothing costing more than 50 bucks. So if you wanted to look like a wannabe wise guy, you were all set, but if you wanted to rock a grill, you were as good as a marked man. So Lil Wayne had to lose the grill. So much so that his prison sentence was postponed in order to accommodate the trip to the dentist. Prison, which is where he was headed. The weapons charge, at least in the eyes of the court, was legit. Even though Lil Wayne and most everyone else knew it was bullshit. 12 months, a full year for having a gun, a gun that wasn't even on him, that was quote unquote in his possession. And by possession, they meant on his tour bus, in the general proximity of him, but not on his body. A year for that? The sentence seemed entirely fucked up, even though Lil Wayne had another pending charge. This one in Arizona, after police dogs had sniffed out weed, ecstasy, cocaine, guns, and 20 grand in cash in his tour bus in 2008. 
But that was a separate case, which would whittle down to three years parole and no jail time, so it shouldn't have mattered. Lil Wayne knew what was up. He was headed to Rikers because the judge, the cops, whoever, they had headlines to grab. And that's what the hassle was about on that night, headlines. It wasn't about some trumped up gun charge, it was about Lil Wayne, a New Orleans rapper in New York City, headlining a concert venue for the first time while beefing with New York's top MC, Jay-Z. The two men with the surname of Carter had a long history of respect and beef. Lil Wayne rapped that he was the best rapper alive since the best rapper retired on 2004's Bring It Back. As for the current beef, most of it seemed to stem from out-of-context quotes in hip-hop mags and friendly competition. July 22nd, 2007. New York City's Beacon Theater. Lil Wayne at the top of the bill. The city's hip-hop community turned up. Kanye was on his way, Khaled was in the house, Jules Santana and Ja Rule were having a hard time getting in, Irv Gotti was pissed, and police were everywhere. Out front on Broadway, mounted on horses, inside the doors monitoring the metal detector post, roaming plainclothes cops pushing through the packed crowd, clocking for indiscriminate bulges and waistlines, and at the backstage door patting down the headliner, harassing Lil Wayne on his way into the venue to perform his set. When asked about the show later, DJ Khaled said he felt like he was going into a prison. Lil Wayne shared the ill sentiment. When he first hit the stage, the harassment and overbearing police presence was hard to shake off. He told his rabid audience that, quote, I just went through the worst fucking feeling ever with y'all police. On stage, he looked defeated, disappointed, disgusted. He then leaned into it. And this may be one of the only times you see me because of how they treated me. When Wayne put it behind him, though, and soldiered on. Kanye hit the stage with him and the place lost its shit. Cal and Santana and Ja Rule also hit the stage for cameos. In the end, the show went off great. And the performances were on fire and the audience was ecstatic. Lil Wayne had arrived in New York. But now it was time to bounce. Lights on, hit the bus, hit the hotel, party, split. Except that didn't happen. Lil Wayne and his entourage were detained before going anywhere. Almost as soon as the tour bus rolled out, it was pulled over by New York's finest. And the cops claimed that they smelled marijuana, which of course was entirely possible. And when the cops got on the bus, they went straight for Wayne, who was in the back, in nothing but his boxer shorts mid-change. The cops claimed they saw him throw a Louis Vuitton bag under one of the bunks. In it, a 40 caliber handgun. But Lil Wayne argued that it wasn't his. Didn't matter. He was hauled in and charged with the possession of an illegal firearm in New York, a Class D violent felony. And the gun wasn't his, and it was registered, just not to him, to his manager, and not in New York and Mississippi. But New York prosecutors weren't playing. They went at him hard, seeking the maximum penalty, and Lil Wayne's lawyers knew better than to tempt what at the time was the city's rigid justice system. They prevailed upon Lil Wayne to take a plea. He did, admitting that the gun, though not in his possession, was within his quote-unquote dominion or control, meaning, I guess, that if he wanted to pick up a gun that was registered and shoot it off, he had the ability to do so, which makes sense somewhat, but in my mind doesn't justify a year-long prison sentence. But it didn't matter. Lil Wayne, one of the most famous and successful rappers on the planet at the time, was heading off to Rikers Island Prison for a year, and there was nothing that he or his dentist or anyone else could do about it.
Bottom of the 12th, heart of the order. And the temperature continued to fall in Boston as fans' heart rates rose into the bottom of the 12th. A 4-4 game, a 2-1 pitch. Manny Ramirez got it going with a hit. The Red Sox had their leadoff man on. David Ortiz was now at the plate. One on, no outs, 4-4 tie. A Yankee win and they go to the World Series. A Red Sox win and they avoid the sweep. The pitch to Big Pappy. David Ortiz took it deep into right field. Sheffield went back, but home run. The Red Sox won. Overcame certain defeat and lived to fight another day. That's all Lil Wayne wanted, to live to fight another day. He'd done it before, he'd do it again. Prison was hard, boring as fuck, but Lil Wayne was doing his time, riding out his one-year sentence, hoping for time off for good behavior. Real jail was no joke, but it wasn't all bad. There were little things to help make it a little easier. The old dude across the hall looked out for him. We got him extra sugar for his coffee every morning. And he had an MP3 player, he could mess with that, mess with music, keep his head occupied. And there was a radio. He could sometimes listen to ESPN and occasionally catch a game from his beloved Red Sox. He could be social if he wanted. He ended up officiating a wedding for two fellow inmates. And they decorated the cell with streamers made from toilet paper, drank Gatorade in celebration. And of course, there were visitors. Kanye, Diddy, and Lil Wayne's protege, Drake. Lil Wayne had signed Drake to Young Money Entertainment back in 2009. He knew Drake was a star, and on his hunch, now the world knew it too. So did Lil Wayne's girlfriend, which was the problem. It was why Drake was visiting his mentor behind bars to tell him in person what Wayne already knew, what the rumors claimed that yes, he, Drake, was sleeping with Lil Wayne's girl. It stung, but Wayne would have to overcome worse. He was now in solitary forced to do his remaining month by himself for possession of illegal contraband, the MP3 player. Solitary was brutal. Too much time alone. Lil Wayne lived in the moment, always, one minute to the next. He relied on instinct. The universe had a plan, God had a plan. If there was a roadmap, he'd never seen it. But alone, holed up in the darkness, there were visions, violent visions. A bus barreling onto an Atlanta highway through a spray of gunfire, bullets flying everywhere, screaming, crying, screeching tires, fear everywhere but not in Lil Wayne's heart. It beat steady, true. Rampant bullets weren't anything he couldn't overcome, and the bus would come to a stop, and so too would the shooting, and he'd be fine. Better than before. Stronger. Smarter. Smart enough to sniff out a snake in his midst. A vision of a slithering, money-grubbing reptile working his way through Lil Wayne's house on the outside. A mentor, a father figure, a traitor in his midst, stealing right out from under his nose. Millions gone in a record label advance embezzlement. The running of Lil Wayne's hard-earned cash. After Lil Wayne built Cash Money Records, it couldn't be. It was too far-fetched a vision. Say it ain't so, time would tell. In the meantime, though, Time was all that mattered. Doing the time, not letting it do you. Overcoming, enduring. Baseball is an endurance sport. 162 games in a season played over six months. Longer if you make the playoffs. It's a grueling stretch. 
It's rare, if near impossible, for a player to go an entire season without some sort of injury. Some play through the pain, but most don't. The great ones, of course, do. There's a rhythm to a baseball season. It starts out easy, languid almost, picks up steam, dips into a respite in July, comes back furious in the late summer months, and speeds into the fall postseason on fumes. There are nine innings per game in baseball, and unlike any other sport, there is no clock. You play until you finish, until someone comes out on top, no matter the time, no matter the number of extra innings. Unlike in other sports, there is more at stake for quitters. Arguably, you've invested too much of your time and effort to get to this point in the game to give up. October 17, 2004. The Boston Red Sox, Lil Wayne's team, was five hours plus into an extra innings winner-go-home game against the vaunted New York Yankees, a team that had the Sox number for the better part of a century. Mid-October, almost a full three extra weeks of postseason playing time on top of the extra innings. They were tired, down three games to none. The world had counted them out. Even their fans had counted them out. If they tell you otherwise, they're lying. Losing was expected at this point. For the players, giving up, losing at that late point in the game would have gone unnoticed. It would have been the easy thing to do. But the Red Sox clawed, scraped, and fought their way back, tying the game in the ninth and eventually winning it on a David Ortiz walk-off home run in the 12th. There was no giving up because giving up meant giving up too much. Too much time, too much invested energy. It wasn't just a game, it wasn't just a season, it wasn't even the romanticized overcoming of some silly non-existent curse. It was pride, a sense of self, of one's place in the world at the top, overcoming the odds, a world beater. It was the inherent will to not give up, to overcome. Lil Wayne had that same will. It would have been easy to fall into bad habits in prison, to get high, fuck off, fight, whatever. And there were numerous ways for Lil Wayne to have taken his eye off the ball and to extend his stay at Rikers, but that wasn't going to happen. He was neither above the law nor under the influence. He had exerted so much effort, so much of himself into his career by that point. Even if he was in prison, there was too much at stake. He'd been rapping since he was nine and rapping for cash money since he was 12. He'd been famous his entire adult life and for part of his childhood. He'd won four Grammys, released multiple platinum albums, escaped Hollygrove to tour the world. There was too much on the line now. He had too many people counting on him. Everyone at Young Money Entertainment, the label he had founded a few years earlier. His family, his four children, their four different mothers, all relied on him. So there was nothing he was going to do to set him back. And there was nobody or nothing that he was going to let keep him down this deep into the game. Not the vicious murder of a father figure, not his father abandoning him, not a third father figure's betrayal, or the betrayal of a protege, not even a gunshot wound to the chest or eight months in Rikers, and especially not a month in solitary confinement at the end of his stint. None of it was gonna do Lil Wayne in. On November 4th, 2010, Lil Wayne walked out of prison and into the rest of his life. Once again, a free man because giving in, giving up, it wasn't in him. For Lil Wayne, it would have been nothing short of disgraceful. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. All right, it was reported in late January of 2021 after the writing and recording of this episode that Lil Wayne was granted a pardon by then-President Donald J. Trump for a felony gun charge a different felony gun charge than the one depicted in this episode. 
a felony gun charge springing from an arrest in late 2019, a felony gun charge that very likely would have landed Lil Wayne a convicted felon in prison again, but this time for up to 10 years. It was also reported that after his arrest and before the 2020 presidential election, Lil Wayne, ever the self-preservationist and not one to give up, was able to arrange a meeting with the then-president at his golf course in Miami. By all accounts, the president was charmed by the megawatt rap star, and so the rap star was pardoned and therefore, once again, free to be Lil Wayne. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month, weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola. He's a bad, bad man.